Welcome back to the Takes It Took. We are joined today what? with our judges, Christopher Walken. What is your take on today's episode? I'm going to give them a solid five out of five. I like that. Um, it's a rather hot day today, everybody. It's a so scorcher. It's a goddamn scorcher. If, if we sound unhappy, that's because we are. And uh, if it sounds like we are rushing content, that's because we are. Because this so, little Alaskan was not meant for the LA heat. No. Yeah. And this Minnesotan was not meant for the concrete bars. Uh, I've lived in California my entire life, so uh, I'm ready for it, but I still don't like it. All right, well, I think we should just kind of jump into today's episode if that's so all right. So if this you is your first time listening to this episode, we do a thing where we uh, recap a movie. Actually, so no, we don't do that first. Stefan, if you hop off and let me finish what I was going to say, I was going to say we got an email. Oh, yeah. We got oh, an email. We got an oh. email. All right, so we got an email from the fourth host of this podcast, truly, Wesley. Hey, um, my boy. And uh, the the subject line is guest host Wesley here with a series of ultimately pointless questions that I think would be fun to talk about. Okay, um, shoot. So he, I think I'll just. There's a lot here, so I'm just gonna kind of oh, kind of just do it all at once. Okay. What makes a film? Is it length? Some TV shows have episodes longer than films, and the short film is a category. Is it a running theme or story? Monty Python's Meaning of Life is a film. And that's just unconnected sketches loosely related to life. Jackass is a film, and that's just guys hitting each other in the nuts for a couple hours. Is it being from one main creator? The ABCs of Death is a film, but had many separate creators. Is it the size of the screen? Netflix Netflix originals are only on small screens. If I took all love, death, and robots, strung it into one long sequence, would I turn it into a film? At some point, something becomes a film. So where do we draw that line? That's that. Uh, That's actually a pretty good I'm going to jump in here first. I, I genuinely think it's just the length is the biggest thing because anthology films are a thing. Ballad of Buster Scruggs is a thing. Like if, if it's just unrelated content streamed together and put through like the film format, like that's a film. And yeah, short film is a film, just short. I don't know. I think the boundaries of film are kind of limitless. I, yeah, I, I, I think I kind of agree. I think length... Because, yeah, there are some TV shows that have really long episodes, but I don't know. I think something about the structure and the fact that it is episodic in nature mm-hmm. then makes it an episode it's, and not a film. So Yeah, it's it's intended to be continued further through through episodic. There's, Which is different there's, than a series. I was going to say there's series. There's, you know, Star Wars is a series. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, the episodic notion was the important part of that, I guess. Hmm. Honestly, I I think it may just come down to it's uh, a motherfucker out there going, yeah, this is a movie, and yeah, uh, and, and after that, it's a movie. You just say that it's a movie, and it is. I yeah, I think that's true to some degree as well. Because you can make home movies. Hey, oh shebang. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good question. <laughs> anyway, that was. That was our email from Wesley, so thank you for sending that in. If you guys have any other questions that you'd like to send us, feel free to do so. We are at thetakesittook at gmail.com. 
Um, but yeah, now back to our regularly scheduled program here. Typically, at the start of each episode, we go through what we've watched recently before jumping into the episode. So I'm going to turn it over to you boys. What have you seen recently? What did you think about it? Me, me, me. Pick me. All right, Miles. I watched uh, the new Indiana Jones movie, Dial of Destiny. Oh, yeah. How was oh, it? Oh, you be careful with your words, boy. Damn. We're, we're seeing it tomorrow. Oh. Yeah, no spoilers. Okay, okay. So no I, won't, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. I think it holds a place in between uh, three and four, like rank-wise. Yeah, that's kind of where I thought it would end up. So it's okay. it's better. It's most certainly better than uh, the Crystal Skull, and it's up to personal choice whether or not it's better than uh, Temple of Doom. It is not better than the Raiders of the Lost Ark or Holy Grail, in in my opinion. But do you mean wait? Do you mean the Last, Last Crusade? Crusade? Oh, Last Crusade. Sorry, they're looking for the Holy Grail. The actual, so most of the movie, because I'm sure people have heard that, you know, there's the the deep fake stuff, right? Yeah. The deep fake stuff is like. The, if you haven't, they deep fake Harrison Ford to make him. Yeah, better. it's in the beginning. Most of the movie is him old. So you don't really have to worry about watching a whole movie with him being deep faked. I will say that the deep fake, if you're just a normal average Joe movie watcher, you're probably going to be like, oh, this is really good. Uh, if you care about visual effects and whatnot you might be like this is pretty good but it looks like a triple a video game um Hmm. at the best times and at the worst times he looks like he lives in the uncanny valley it is it is funny watching old man indiana jones try to run around though because he's running like an old man (laughs) he's you know what though there's a there's a part of the movie where his shirt's off He's actually kind of ripped. He's he's like old man ripped. It's kind of nuts. I think it's going to be really funny watching you move around when you're old too, Miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will you kick my cane out? And I'm yeah. begging for you to give it back so I can stand up. Oh, God, this is funny. He's moving like an old man. Well, what did you watch, Stefan? Okay, I'm kind of going to talk about two movies. Cheating. I watched this movie with Harvey Keitel called Bad Lieutenant. And I watched another movie called Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans. Now, the Harvey Keitel one came first. And it's really just Harvey Keitel being a bad lieutenant. Um, I, I would actually rename it the worst lieutenant because he is the worst lieutenant. And he does bad things. But... The one I'm going to talk about is the second one, Port of Call New Orleans, which has Nicolas Cage in it. It was directed by Werner Herzog. Okay. And it's just kind of like a spiritual connection. Like, it's not a sequel or anything. It's just kind of like similar. They just use the title for some reason. Um, and it starts off kind of like a normal procedural cop, like cop movie. And then it just goes into madness. Like, there's a certain point in the movie where things turn. You're like, oh, this is insane. Because you're getting like iguana POV shots of Nicolas Cage staring at an iguana. You get, there's a bit where they shoot a guy and Nicolas Cage is just staring at him and he's like, shoot him again. They're like, why? And he's like, his soul's still dancing. And then it cuts over to a guy breakdancing. His soul is breakdancing and it's playing like harmonica, like bluegrass music as he's breakdancing. And then they shoot his body again and the breakdancer dies. And then an iguana walks in the shot. It's bonkers. It's nuts. That sounds, it is, that sounds awesome. It's it, 
if you like kooky, crazy things, watch this movie. It is insane, but it is very strange. So that's that's my tea that I bring to session. I like it. I think it's. I, I think that sounds fun. Mariah? Mariah, what did you watch? I watched a movie called Time Bandits from 1981, uh, which is directed by Terry Gilliam, and it has a bunch of like the Monty Python crew, and it's the first in the trilogy of imagination which also contains brazil and the adventures of baron munchausen which i had seen the adventures of baron munchausen before and that is a very wild time you've got like robin williams is the king of the moon and anyway um but this one is essentially this little boy who is kind of ignored in his house by his parents wakes up in the middle of night and finds what is like six um dwarves go ahead okay (laughs) uh and basically they take him through like history and they are bandits they're time bandits and they have this special map that drops them into all the right places at the right time so they like they steal from napoleon and all this kind of stuff and it's just a very wacky adventure and uh it was a very fun time so yeah i liked it another wacky movie Mm -hmm. grand budapest yeah yeah it's a wacky movie and uh that's the one we're talking about today folks yeah, if you couldn't tell by the title of the episode. So I guess um, before we jump in, could you tell me, Miles, what happens in this I, movie? Whoa. Yeah, okay. So me and Stefan, Stefan put a gun to my head earlier and he uh, said, let me do the first part or I swear to God, I'm going to blow your goddamn brains out all I'm over gonna the walls. I'm going to start this summary. I'm going to do this summary. Okay, here we go. First of all, this movie starts with what we call a framing device, right? Which is where... Um, the whole story is framed within this woman reading a book and then it ends with her reading the book. But not only do we have this woman reading a book, she's reading a book and the author of the book, the writer of the book, is talking about how he met a man in his youth named Zero, who that man in his youth was part of the Grand Budapest Hotel. And he recounts to this author how he became the owner of the Grand Budapest Hotel. So, with that all out of the way, we have Ray Fiennes plays Gustav. He is, I don't know his title, he's like the showrunner of the of the Grand Budapest Hotel. The Grand Budapest is an institution of class, refinement, and cultural optimism. Gustav runs the joint with old lady laying precision. He's very good at laying old ladies. And one day, yes, he, is good he at begins... That. He's very good at it. You know, he gets paid big bucks for that. And one day he begins a walkabout with a new trainee lobby boy who is zero. And he starts to teach him the ropes of satisfying others, not necessarily laying, but just, you know, attending to people's needs at a hotel. And uh, one day, one of his most interesting old, rich, needy, and blonde ladies that he's had sex with dies. And so he gets news of this. Madam and they decide. D. Is her Madam D. Anyways, we learn that Madam D has died, even though she was dynamite in the sack. So, Gustav travels with Zero out from Zabrovka, the country they're in, and they go into another country. I'm not Lutz. sure exactly what. I can't tell if they Lutz, go to Lutz is the country or the city, if I'm honest. The city? I don't know. It's fictional places, per se. And um, along the way, they are harassed by fascists. But a good fascist, Edward Norton, helps them out. Um, no such thing. Yeah, right. And uh, they make it, and the two sit in for the last will and testament of Madame D. And Gustav is bestowed the boy with apple, 
the family, Madame D's family, is outraged and the very which upset. is a painting. Yes, yep, yeah. boy with apple yeah, painting. He, I, I can't believe I didn't mention. Well, it's that. not. Yeah, it's not slavery, um, so it's a it's a painting, not an actual boy that he was given. Yeah, 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 a painting. But um, you know, family's outraged. Everyone gets punched except Willem Dafoe. He stunts on the camera, and Zero then encourages some of Gustave's lesser legal inclinations, and together they fly the coop with the painting because the family doesn't want him to have it, even though it was bestowed upon them through the last will and testament. And so they end up hiding the the painting and then, whoa, the fascists are back and Gustave has been framed for the murder of Madame D. Because she was and, poisoned. She didn't just die naturally. Yes, yes, she was poisoned. And, dear listener, this is precisely what happens and Gustave is arrested and placed in prison and uh, determined not to be a candy ass, he starts to befriend many of the uh, fellow inmates, including Harvey Keitel, who's also there. And also, meanwhile, Willem Dafoe is tracking down the falsified witness of, oh, goodness, this is complicated, of the sister of one of the butlers at the mansion that Madame D died wild. And then also during this time, Zero is beginning a romance with I've forgotten her name. Agatha. Damn, that makes Agatha, two of us. who's got a birthmark, the shape of Mexico on the side of her face. They start courting. They get married. She works at a bakery called Mendel's. And they send pastries to the prison. And then they find out that, hey, we can sneak tools into the into the pastries. And so our prison boys get some tools to escape. And uh, they do just that. They escape. Miles, I'll let you pick up from there. God, I watched this movie literally a couple hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck happens they, it, uh, they dear listener this movie is rather complex yeah okay Kinda so they really, but, but they get out uh they are essentially on the run from the cops and mm-hmm. willem dafoe shows up and is also chasing them uh well yeah yeah that's <sighs> Fuck. There's 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 a society they of go, the, yeah, they go to the secret society yeah. of Lasky's to get help. <laughs> okay, so the secret society of Lasky's is like a bunch of other hotel dealers or hotel crossed people. Crossed. Huh? Crossed, not lost. <laughs> crossed? Okay. Crossed keys. Yes. That makes sense because the, the emblem is crossed keys. Bill so Bill Murray helps them at some point, but basically yeah. they go like, okay, here, we can get you to the guy that Helped you steal the portrait in the first place. Who, yeah, falsified, the falsified, falsified witness. witness. He goes. They find out that yeah, it was falsified because that guy's family was getting threatened by Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe ends up killing him. Willem Dafoe then chases our two main boys and is about to kill the main hotel runner guy while he speaks Gustav. Po- yeah, Gustav while he speaks poetry, and then our fucking boy Zero knocks that motherfucker off a cliff and i thought that part was really funny and then they go and they get back to the hotel because they're now trying to find the paper slip that has the uh new will for if lady d was murdered and so they go back to try to find it there's a shootout with the fascists they find the paper slip and Mm -hmm. The second copy of the second will. Yeah, the second copy of the second will, effectively naming our main boy, the sole proprietor, Gustav, Gustav, as the sole proprietor of all the goods that Lady D has. 
And then Which it should it should be mentioned that Willem Dafoe as Jopling has been working for Madame D's son, played by Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody is determined to get boy with Apple and keep all of the estate, and he feels threatened by Gustav, which is why he sends Jopling after him. Yes. And and then honestly not a whole lot happens. It kind of just talks about like where everyone went after the events of this thing. Uh yeah. Gustav gets the- shot. Zero gets married and then his wife and son die. And then after, well, I guess before that, Gustav gets shot and then makes Zero the heir to all of that shit. And then, I don't know, I mean, it's kind of all that happens. So then we have older Zero relaying this information to the young writer played by Jude Law. And then it... Pulls back again to the older writer, who I'm not entirely sure who that actor is, relaying hearing this story from older Zero, and that's how the story yeah, ends. I've, that was by far the longest summary we have ever had this goddamn podcast. I'm gonna have to figure out how to edit that. Well, it, yeah, I tried to. It's yeah. just like it. It is hard because it's it's kind of complex. I finished watching it and then I thought, oh, I'm fucked. There's a lot of moving parts, and then plus trying to describe the framing device of moving through time yeah. with the different uh, characters is tricky. Yeah, there's three time periods. There's the 1980s, which is mm-hmm. the the very beginning with the girl with the book and the older writer talking to the audience. And then there's the 1960s, which is when the writer was younger and he meets with older Zero. And then there's the 1930s, which is when the majority of the story takes place. So kind of travels throughout time in that yes but okay i think we should just keep plowing on through i don't know about you guys all right so as we so eloquently heard the summary of the grand budapest hotel written and directed by wes anderson uh released in 2014 with the story written by wes anderson and his longtime collaborator hugo guinness who he actually created the artwork in the royal tenenbaums and life aquatic and then he voiced the character of nathan bunce in fantastic mr fox and then Post-Grand Budapest, he helped write The French Dispatch. So, as you will tell as a running theme in here, Wes Anderson likes to find people he likes to work with, and he just keeps working with them for many, many, many movies. Imagine, if you will, 2006. Wes Anderson and Hugo Guinness write an 18-page script that came out to about a 12-minute kind of cut of uh, The Grand Budapest, but they kind of stalled, and they couldn't figure out how to advance the story from there. They kind of had the writer... Um, an author character and at the beginning they based it on a mutual friend that they had and they had set it in modern day france slash like uk but then when they couldn't kind of figure out where the story should go uh they kind of stopped and that's kind of about the same time that wes anderson stumbled upon the writer stefan zwieg zwieg Whoa, or stefan stefan you worked on this zwieg stefan zwieg um, who was an Austrian writer in the 1920s and 30s, and specifically Wes Anderson took inspiration from his books Beware of Pity, The World of Yesterday, and The Post Office Girl, and he just really liked his kind of fatalist writings and especially his depictions of Vienna in that time period. So um, in an interview that he did, Anderson said, quote, I had never heard of Zweig, or if I had only in the vaguest ways, maybe until maybe six or seven years ago, when I was more or less just by chance bought a copy of Beware of Pity. I love this first book. I also read The Post Office Girl. The Grand Budapest Hotel has elements that were sort of stolen from both these books. Two characters in our story are vaguely meant to represent Veg or hims- uh, himself, our author character, played by Tom Wilkinson, and the theoretically fictionalized version of himself, played by Jude Law. 
But in fact, Monsieur Gustave, the main character who is played by Ray Fiennes, is modeled significantly on him as well. So there's like three characters. Three men. It's one guy. Yeah. Three characters are kind of based on this guy, uh, on this author. Um, so once Wes Anderson had this real inspiration for the character and the idea of where he wanted to take the story, he took about six weeks to write the screenplay. So then they hired a man named Jay Clark to create these storyboards for the movie. And then uh, Wes Anderson did all the voiceover stuff. And then um, Anderson would also go on to work with Clark again. Again, as I mentioned, as he does with many people. And Clark also did the storyboards for Isle of Dogs, French Dispatch, and Asteroid City. How's it going? Asteroid City. Yeah. So after the Cannes Film Festival in 2012 for Moonrise Kingdom, Anderson did this big Europe sightseeing tour and he went to Vienna, Munich, Budapest, small Italian spa towns, Karlovy Vary, which is, I'm totally butchering that, I'm sorry. It's like a spa town in Czechia. And then they kind of ended the tour in Eastern Germany, which is where Anderson spent more time studying about like the life of concierges and like bellhops and stuff like that. Andrew Yeoman, who was the director of photography, um, and he'd collaborated with Anderson since like Bottle Rocket in 1996. So he accompanied him to test shoot and use crew as like stand-in actors to get a better idea of how these scenes would unfold. Um, And you can see some great behind-the-scenes footage of like just regular crew pretending to essentially be Gustav or Zero running down the halls and stuff like that. Um, Yeoman also used the film One from the Heart, which is a Coppola movie. Uh, as inspiration for the lighting specifically and then they also used hollywood comedies set in europe like around the 1950s um and then of course as you can tell by like the framing and like the aspect ratio 1930s movies a lot yeah one from the heart being a movie that i'm not allowed to watch because i can't find it anywhere yeah uh there is a great video i watched somewhere and I i can't remember where it was it was like on instagram or something and it compared specific shots from like older movies and grand budapest of like zero running down the hallway and it's like a kid running the exact same way or like willem dafoe's character mm-hmm. putting on the uh, ski boots and like that shot or like jeff goldblum's character being followed like all of these have very direct inspirations that you can find which is just like really cool there there was some paul newman movie that i thought was referenced well i know the uh part where they're using the ladder and they're carrying it across the screen. That's inspired by Buster Keaton. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely felt like that. Or even like a cartoon or something. Anyway. Just very neat. Um, so anyway, after all of those kind of touring and seeing where they liked, they ended up filming basically just in Eastern Germany in Gorlitz and Dresden, as well as a bunch of like other small towns in Saxony. And a lot of the looks were for the film were inspired by Eastern Germany since they were there, um, Prague, Vienna, and of course, Budapest. So chugging right along and getting into casting. And Oh yeah. Disclaimer. Mm-hmm. The the pronunciation is rather contested here. Yeah. Technically speaking correctly, right? It should be Budapest. Yes. Budapest. So if any viewers feel mad that we aren't doing it, it's because uh, we gave up. I don't uh, know. Okay, well, yeah, which, I mean, now that I know, I'm going to be calling it Budapest. But I mean, like, I think Gustav says it that way a couple times in the film. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's it should be Budapest, like the actual city. But everybody in the movie and everybody who talks about this movie calls it the Grand Budapest. So I'm just going to be a little normie and call it that. Um, <laughs> normie. So 
with Wes Anderson, he's got a lot of buddies he likes to work with. This is now the third time I've mentioned this and we're only like 20 minutes in. So um, we have Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum. And I wrote Tilda Swinton again, just to emphasize the fact, I guess. So <laughs> Tilda Swinton. <laughs> so uh, when they heard he was making another movie, they they all said yes. Um, and he basically got just his first choice for all the characters because he wrote this knowing who he wanted. Um, the exception were the two lead characters of Gustav and Zero, as well as Madame D, who obviously was eventually played by Tilda Swinton. She was initially going to be played by Angela Lansbury. Quick, quick question. Um, yeah. Uh, Tilda Swinton plays the bald lady in... Doctor Strange. Strange. Oh, yeah. Okay. Doctor Strange. Yes. That's, Look at him go. That's who I thought it was. They made and her- I was like, ah, she looks kind of like gross and old to be the same person. <laughs> I I'm proud of you, Miles. That's so, very good. Yeah, uh, yeah no. I'm... She's in Asteroid City too. He's learning. She is. She plays the uh scientist lady. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Mm-hmm. Good job, Miles. Yeah, but if you'd asked me her name, I would have been like, uh <laughs> Anyway, so Angela Lansbury was supposed to be Madame D, but she was doing a stage production of Driving Miss Daisy at the time, and so there was just a conflict they couldn't work out, so it went to Tilda Swinton. Um, it was reported that Johnny Depp was considered for Gustav, but Wes Anderson denies that. And I, I guess huh. there was something that came out saying that, um, like conflicts of schedule, like made it where there there wasn't even like a negotiation or a talk at all. But anyway, very odd. Because I also saw that Wes Anderson wrote this specifically for Ray Fiennes. So I don't know. Anyway, Ray Fiennes got it. <laughs> He was offered this part. He was super surprised and he was super excited to step away from like the villainous roles that he was known for because obviously he's Voldemort, you know? So yeah, he was super stoked and he agreed. And then um, Agatha is played by Sorcerer Ronan, who she signed on as early as 2012 to be in the film. But apparently she was very nervous about doing a Wes Anderson film because of like the deadpan delivery and also like her accent because <laughs> that she didn't know like what accent they wanted her to do. And they were like, they tried German, it didn't really work. And then Anderson kind of decided, like, I think because the Irish accent's like very nice and warm, it kind of works with the character. When they were talking about it, she said, quote, Well, Rafe is speaking like an English person, and Jeff is speaking like Jeff Goldblum, and Tony is speaking in the accent of Anaheim, and we have German actors who are speaking German accents. So I guess Irish. <laughs> and so she was just like, uh, I'll do that. And what I found interesting is that at this time, Every movie that Sorcerer Ronan had been in, she was she used a different accent. So this was the first time in a film she got to use her Irish accent. And as Anderson said, first time she's playing a bakery girl from Zbrovka. <laughs> and she's just like Irish for some reason. With a Mexican, Mexico-shaped birthmark. Yeah. It's a very diverse cast. Um, Which, do you have anything on that, by the way? No. I okay. I tried to look it up and it says that Anderson kind of just like never ex- like expanded on it. So huh. uh, that's what I have for you there. <laughs> Lol to randoms, RSD. <laughs> yeah. But the most important role that they needed to cast was finding, quote, a preferably Arabic actor to play Zero. So the casting director was named Doug- Douglas Abel and he started this before the script was even done trying to find this guy. And they set out a wide search, like, literally everywhere. They were looking in the U.S. for, like, American Arab communities. They were looking in Egypt. They were looking in France. They were looking in Palestine, Israel, you name it. 
And then they stumbled across a pair of brothers in where else but Los Angeles um, who were Guatemalan. And one of them was Tony Revolori. And after one taped audition, he was offered the part. And Revolori and Anderson would also like rehearse for four months before production to kind of get that extra prep time in and develop like a relationship so he could kind of be caught up to speed on set, which is a crazy amount of time to be doing rehearsal with a director, by the way. Just hanging out, vibing them with them. Right. Uh Yeah. This is also, I think, like the first thing that he's done. So, yeah, I mean, just to like, if you're going up to bat alongside like a two time Oscar nominated actor who's i guess i guess ray fines hadn't worked with wes anderson before but like you know what i mean just catching him up to speed makes sense to me but yeah four months of that is just pretty incredible yeah anyway so now we're in production production took place in again eastern germany from january to march 2013 and they filmed this all in just 10 weeks throughout the filming the majority of the cast and crew stayed in the hotel bors in gorlitz germany and they did wardrobe and makeup there as well um, so they all like live together, which is very fun. Mm. Um, and Anderson said like it was super convenient, cost effective, built up a good rapport and like made things more productive. So like it worked out great. Um, and a fun tidbit is that the owner of the hotel was an extra who appears as a worker behind the front desk at the Grand Budapest. So he would work with them during the day and then they would go back to the hotel and then they would like see him at the front desk again. Except this time he was like, actually, actually working. Wait, so they, they filmed it in a hotel. So, they actually filmed it in, uh, let me scroll through my notes. Okay, so I do have the name for you. So, the lobby of the Grand Budapest was filmed in the Gorlitz Warenhouse. Warenhouse? That's, it's German, dude. Um, uh, wait, Warenhouse? Like a warehouse. Yeah, but where? Warenhouse. Like the back corner, the front, where... Um, it's, which was it's it's their a house. funny joke. Darren House. Um, which it was an abandoned department store from the early 1900s. Yeah. So obviously time period wise, it worked out really well. And they just completely re- renovated it into the lobby that we see. Um, so yeah, that's where they filmed like the, the lobby part. Um, but yeah, because they were filming, you know, January to March, they only ever had like seven to eight hours of light to work with. So they had to be extremely creative and efficient with capturing light. So like, Pretty much everything at night, obviously, is, like, done at dusk, and they really just, like, crammed as much as they could into every day. Um, They also used, like, a lot of sets, so that also helped. So they started with filming the 1968 scenes between Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham, who is older Zero and the younger author. Um, And they did that so the production design team could work more on the 1930s version of the hotel at the same time. Um, And so they used... Um, a different building, which was uh, the Stathall Gorlitz, which was a civic center that was in use between 1910 and 2005, which feels very fitting for like the fact that the hotel is run down by the end of the, like, the film. Um, so it was out of use by the time they used it. Uh, but yeah, so they were filming the 1968 stuff. And then when they you know, were doing like the lobby, which is all orange and like the older version of the lobby... Um, they had like a fake ceiling to make the ceiling low, if you notice. And so then when they were done filming that, they removed that and then you could actually see like the three floors and then for CG, they added an extra three f- stories. So you do see six floors in the movie, but 
really it was three. But anyway, um, and Ray finds had a kind of a hard time knowing how to approach this character of Gustav since he he personally liked improvisation and Wes Anderson does not. Um, there was a, a thing saying that like Jeff Goldblum wanted to change like one word from his line. It was like from that to Anne or something oh, like that. Oh shit, and Jeff Wes Goldblum was, like, is in this movie. He plays the uh, auction man. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, Wes Anderson was like, nope. We're going to keep it exactly like I wrote it. Anyway, uh, but Fines basically used his previous roles that he had done, which is his character in the movie Sunshine. Uh, he also called back on his time working in a hotel in London, and then he also read The World of Yesterday again, which is that Zweig book that I mentioned earlier that Wes Anderson had read. And mm. Sorcerer Ronan also like actually bakes in the movie which she did not love because the courtesan mm. au chocolat were like really hard to make and she's not a baker. But when you see her like with that sheet in front of her working on stuff, that was like actually a hundred percent her doing it. Um, like of course, like mm. the hundred percent finished ones weren't her, but um, for authenticity, I guess they really gave her work to do. That's, that's kind of <laughs> weird guess. considering how short the scenes are. It's not like it's yeah. a long scene of her cooking. It's just like, Oh, let me take this out of the fucking uh oven and that's the whole scene tell me she they made her cook <laughs> made her cook the whole thing yeah. just for that <laughs> let her cook uh but like really everything seemed to go really smoothly so there's not much to talk about in terms of like crazy production stories there was a time when ray finds when uh they go up to talk with serge x and they're on top of the mountain with like the monastery and robes and they go to the confessional booth and stuff they had to film that scene separately, I guess, because of just scheduling or something. And he filmed his thing, and then he saw Matthew Almerich's performance, and then he was like, if I had known he was going to do it that well, I now feel like I need to do my part over again. Like, he felt, like, <laughs> really insecure about his performance, and, like, he needed to match it. And he was, like, so surprised by the performance that Matthew Almerich gave, which I thought was interesting. Um, huh. But the funniest thing I read was that Wes Anderson, and you can see this in the behind the scenes documentary, which I will be linking. Um, he really demonstrates exactly what he wants. So he's like, oh, you're going to crawl over like this. And then he does the action. Um, so he was demonstrating for the escape sequence from the prison and they're jumping over sleeping prisoners. <laughs> Wes Anderson accidentally hit one of the extras in the face Aww. and mm. the guy swallowed his fake tooth. What? Oh. And he, they had to replace it for him. <laughs> That's only right. So that's a, a fun little story for you. I wonder what it's like to poop out a tooth. I don't think you would really notice. Yeah, I think a tooth is probably... No, ooh, I, like I, I actually would know this. I lost a tooth in a granola bar once and ended up swallowing it. And thus, uh, I pooped out my tooth and I had no idea. I've I've only ever pooped out amber before. Huh? The yeah. rock? Yeah. The stone? Yeah, what are you amber? talking about? You pooped out yeah, amber. I, I swallowed. You swallowed in amber? Yeah, I was yeah, as a jewelry making class. I was And you, you know, hate it's, hard, it's not intentionally, but what yeah. silly little guy <laughs> were you trying to do where you ate amber? Uh I was trying to clean it with my tongue and uh I just have <laughs> like pill swallowing instincts, I think, and I just Put it I in. Swallowed it, and then I had to. I had to pay for the next one. Yeah, all right. Is I'm assuming is very good for like cleansing my body, though. Oh, it's like Crystal Head vodka. 
but for your insides. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, getting back on track here. We're going to be a little bit nerdy and talk about camera terminology Yeah, now. dude, this shit was fish Ooh. eye. This shit was wide open. Mm-hmm. This shit was anamorphic. Shit was, mm-hmm. Dude, they're rocking the like five millimeter. So Andrew Yeoman was the DP on this. He had worked, I think, on seven movies with Wes Anderson up until this point, And they, he just worked on Asteroid City with them. Like long time, long time collaborator. They shot this on film and they used 35 millimeter film on an RE camera and used a Chapman Leonard hybrid three dolly for the film. The dolly with the fluid head helps create all those whip pans that you see that he does a lot of um mm-hmm. and then for pans, a whip pan is when you pan really fast really quickly and is what you and cook a pan on. is when you you move the camera on its x-axis hmm yeah there's that's what i wanted thank you but yes because some of the sometimes like the pans would be over 90 degrees they had to get like a special fluid head to over 90 degrees which i didn't realize that i guess the typical whip pan is like or not whip pan the typical fluid head is only like 90 degrees so hmm. huh. anyway the more um, you know if you do notice of course this film is shot in three aspect ratios though to represent the different time periods so we got mm-hmm. 1.37 to 1 for the 1930s 1.85 to 1 for the 1980s can we get, i'm sorry can and, we get also some layman terms on that so that people who don't know aspect ratios can go oh okay yeah, so 1.37 to 1 is that really boxed in, um, almost like a square yeah, frame, which you would see. Yeah. Think square. Yeah, which you would see in those like old time movies, like that kind of thing. Uh, 1.85 to 1 is just kind of is standard um, that you see in movies It's like now. widescreen. Yeah, format. your TV yeah. probably does and that. And then 2.39 to 1 for the 1960s. Uh, is, it's like full screen. Yeah, yeah. And um, this idea just came because Anderson really specifically wanted to shoot 1.37 to 1, which is called the Academy Ratio, which was like the Hollywood standard in the late 1920s and early 30s. When the film was released, Fox Searchlight had to be extremely specific when sending it out for like all the projectionists to know to screen it in 1.85 to 1, which again is like standard. They sent instructions with like how they should frame the picture, what they should set the brightness to, the audio configuration, the fader setting. They were like, this is how it has to be shown. <laughs> Do not fuck mm. this up. Mm-hmm. And the 1960 scenes were shot using a Technovision Cook anamorphic lens, which are less sharp than the Panavision's anamorphic lenses. Um, I don't know why they made that specific decision, but, um, Mm. and then when possible, they used realistic and time period appropriate lights, like paper lanterns and like bare incandescent lights in zeros rooms. Uh, and they also had lights on dimmers, which, so as you notice, sometimes like a spotlight would fall on an actor. So they had a lot on dimmers. So you can see again, behind the scenes of basically anytime they were on set, Anderson would be reading that narration that you hear from the author. Mm to like cue the actors and so he's reading the narration and then cueing the lights to like drop a spotlight on the actor so that was pretty cool right i, I was just gonna say uh referring to like the less sharper lens if that was intentional like i could see how that would be beneficial because like you know the movie's about kind of like nostalgia and like the past and kind of you know those rose tinted glasses so it's kind of like you know the vaseline vanity look of old cameras where things just sort of soft 
focus and you know everything's just soft i, I forget yeah. what anamorphic means sense. oh brother we're <laughs> huh? talking to the wrong crowd no it's it's so hard i i can't i've looked this up many times and i always forget like how to like explain it it, it has something to do with the way the image is stretched or condensed when it's shot all right from from what i remember slash understand it's like um oh i'm gonna get just roasted for this um yeah basically you film it you have like this lens that films it in and film that gets it captures it in like full screen and then it kind of squashes and like compresses it back Mm -hmm. down into like the standard and so it's like higher definition but it's distorted, it's distorted a, little a little bit from like the compression that happens. Oh, okay. Because I know anamorphic. So, the way you like detect anamorphic lenses is you look at the bokehs in the background, and the bokehs will be olives. Yeah, that's, not olives, oval. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Paul Thomas Anderson uses anamorphic lenses most of the time. So if you've seen one of his movies, you that style, that look. But anyway, they use that for the 1960s uh, era ones. So pretty cool very nice and now we're going to be talking about the production design and the set design because that is really truly the star of this film yeah if i don't know if we've really necessarily explained that you know the visual i'm assuming people are just aware of wes anderson and this stuff but if you aren't his stuff's very unique yeah, if, you, if you're not familiar and, you know, you haven't seen Grand Budapest, which hopefully you have if you're listening to this, um, he just does a lot of very centered, um, everything is very mm-hmm. symmetrical, the color palettes are extremely specific and uniform, um, there's a lot of, I forget what the exact term is, um, but basically the characters face the camera, sometimes they will monologue to the camera, there's a lot of framing devices that he uses in his films, but everything is very symmetrical and precise and perfect planometric is another term where it's like it's usually things are shot kind of like in one dimension like the camera's going one way you know the camera movements are very smooth and steady solid yeah very distinct style no one does it quite like him. yeah and he does pull a lot from 1920s uh films as well with the framing and all that stuff which this one is like extremely apparent in grand budapest anyway so for the production design um, the actual hotel is based, again, on Karlovy Vary, which is that small town in Chechia I mentioned briefly earlier. Um, there's also the Grand Hotel Pup, which, funnily enough, is <laughs> the location of The Last Holiday, starring Queen Latifah and LL Cool J, if you've seen that. that. <laughs> yep. Oh my goodness, with Giancarlo? Giancarlo? <laughs> Go watch The Last Holiday. <laughs> anyway... And then, uh, like, the face of the hotel that you see on the poster for the movie is the Bristol Palace Hotel in Carlobie Berry. And there's a great article that I read that I, again, will be linking that shows the film locations and compares them to the actual locations. And you can just see how, like, incredibly close they got to replicating these incredible designs from Eastern Europe. And sometimes it's just, like, a matter of color correction. And then other times they'll use green screen to cover up, like, one section of a building so they can replace it with something else. Like for the prison when Zero is entering, he's looking up at a green screen wall and then there's just a normal door to the left that they used. So it's kind of like a combination of Mm. green screening this kind of town together and then just using the actual towns that were around and just kind of making everything look a little bit pinker, (laughs) basically. I want my town to be pinker. I want a pinker Dinklage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Also, just a side note, it seems like from watching the behind the scenes and stuff, it just seems like this was a super fun time. It was super cool to watch Wes Anderson direct and how he would, again, relay his vision to the cast and crew because he's very visual and he shows you exactly what you mean and he like makes sure you understand. He also like doesn't shout action typically, which I thought was very interesting. Hmm. And you can see Andrew Yeoman do all like the camera whips around and you see Wes Anderson moving a dolly and you see you just like see the vision come to life and like them working on it. It was just it was just so crazy. he's not out here going do a fresher. Uh, no, he's not. Or uh, or. He's, he's not going, mirror. yeah, uh, you're doing it wrong. Just do it again. Yeah, correct. He's not doing that. That's very cool. There's one bit where he's directing Adrian Brody for like the gunfight scene in uh, the hotel when they're all like shooting across mm-hmm. from each other. And he's just going, Adrian, go. <laughs> and that's like his action. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a little side tangent just based on like the behind the scenes documentary. It was really cool to watch. So again, linking that down below. So back to production design, set design. Adam Stockhausen was in charge for the set design for this film. And like everyone else, he has worked with Anderson before and he worked on Darjeeling Unlimited and Moonrise Kingdom. So he used European Alpine Lodges as kind of his inspiration and then contrasted a lot of the pastel with some very vibrant colors on the insides of the buildings, like the purple of the uniforms and like the red of the hotel interior. And Atkins was the graphic designer who basically worked on everything Zabrovkin, like the newspapers, the passports, banners keys, IDs, letters, everything like that. What's very interesting is that if you stop and read the newspapers, it tells you the story of the film. Like if you're at the beginning of the film and you pause it on the newspaper, it tells you exactly what's going to happen. It spoils it all for you. Really? Really? Yeah. Like example? Uh, Oh, goodness. I I don't have the the frame pulled up. Gustav dies. I I don't don't know. But it just tells a story. I know that. All right. All right. (laughs) But Anne Atkins also did interviews leading up to the movie, and she was kind of trying to make a point about like how important attention to detail is in movies. And so she came up with this notebook that Gustav uses to write things down. But then Ray Fiennes noticed like the notebook didn't have lines in it, and he was like, "With how meticulous Gustav is, like there would be lines. Like you should give me one that has lines instead." And she was like, "Oh, absolutely." And she she gave him one with lines. However, when she was recounting the story. People like mistook it and they misinterpreted Ray Fiennes for being like a diva on set. So she had to be like, no, 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 he's not. He just thought that his character would have this instead. And so she was like, I'm going to just stop telling that story now. And then uh, some people still think that Ray Fiennes was like a diva on the set. Yeah. When yeah. I he was like, you know, what would be neat for my character is I, I think his would have lines in it because he's, you know, like a little bit of a meticulous guy instead of like, fuck you. I'm supposed to have lines on my paper. Go eat shit, die. I need order. Yeah. yeah. You're an inanimate fucking object. <laughs> Who's that? That is, that's his character from In Bruges. Yeah. Which is also a very fantastic role for him. So, there are some miniatures I want to talk about Yay, now. we can talk like about miniatures. That, Stefan? Hey, it's mini utcher time, I did watch a short documentary and the whole time the guy called them miniatures, so... So Simon Weiss worked uh, with a Berlin-based prop-making team to create a bunch of miniatures for uh, a number of the locations. So they created like an eighth-scale forest set for uh, like the ski and sled chase scene. Um, they created a 12th-scale observatory from timber, solder brass, fine powder sugar, and styrofoam. 
And then they also used polyester fiber fill, which is like the stuff made for stuffing pillows and stuffed animals. They used that for the snow. And then the 118th scale Grand Budapest Hotel set stood nine feet tall and was made from silicone resin molds. And so in the windows, they glued photos from the set to have that shine through. And then the little tram that goes up like on the side of it, that was like a completely different, um, it was a completely different set that actually like functioned. And also at the like the very beginning, there's like this weird little elevator that comes down from like a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And that was like fully functional as well, which was like hmm. really I cool. love the little sets that, that like actually function. I think they're so neat. Um there were also like no trains used at all for this film. It's all flat theatrical props for like I mean almost shadow puppetry, you know? So there's like the scene when Gustav and Zero, having had escaped from prison, run and catch a train with from the help of Bill Murray. So they pull up in a fancy old car like at the top of like a bridge and catch a train. And so there's no train station there at all. Stockhausen, who again was in charge of set design, he said, quote, we made a train, but the train wasn't a real train. There's nothing much to it. It was exactly like a stage train made out of cardboard and tape and sticks and painted black with smoke with smoke coming out the top. We pushed it into the shot on dolly tracks from the right-hand side of the frame. There is no way in a motion picture that you could get away with a shot like that, but I think we pulled it off. They did good. They did real good, kid. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've seen some photos of the, like, behind the scenes of the train where it's just, like, Oh, I mean, it's like it's half yeah. a train. I mean, it's like a little half box, and they make it look nice and put it on dolly tracks, which, you know, it's like a little uh, push train. Mm-hmm. Which is what yeah. they do when you get on a train. It's all for show. You don't go anywhere. They just change the outside and shake you around a bit. Yeah. Same with planes, actually. You think you think those windows you are really real? You really think they're boiling water to make you move? How gullible are you? Wake up, sheeple. For when Zero and Gustav, when they're on the train and the train like stops, you can find like a behind-the-scenes video of exactly what this looked like. And it was the smallest set where basically I was like... Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe six by six little backdrop. It's like a smart car. Yeah. Like a six by six where you could see like a window and then they had the two actors sit on it and then they just pushed them on dolly track. There's no train. There's no mechanic, anything. It's them like out in the cold, essentially doing this little shot. One thing I wanted to talk about is because Stefan brought up Night of the Hunter, I think in the last episode or two episodes ago, Stockhausen mentions that. He likened this kind of cardboard optical illusion trick to Night of the Hunter, and he said, quote, kids look out the window and see Robert Mitchum's character, Reverend Harry Powell, riding up on a ridge on a horse. He's kind of silhouetted in a different, in the distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, this scene was actually shot going. on a soundstage. It wasn't Robert Mitchum on a horse at all, but a little person riding a tiny pony. Ooh. Why mimic these mm-hmm. old-fashioned optical illusions when there are easier options? Tricks like that create a different sort of energy when you use them in a film. There's something enchanting to them. I just thought that was interesting that, you know, we watched that stuff and talked about it and then it yeah, it was an inspiration for this one. So that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was leaning. Similar to the kind of like fake little train thing that they made, the merry-go-round or like the carousel that Zero and Agatha get on and he gives her like the poetry book and there's that wonderful shot of like her face and all the lights in the background. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was just a single horse, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like a skeleton of a carousel, basically, that they just hooked up and just moved with the camera. So that wasn't like a real one, you know? <laughs> um, Damn, you hate to see when they're not a real one. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then the Germany-based Vivex team Lux Studios teamed up with Look Studios here in LA for doing stop motion and working with the miniature team to create like a smoother combination of the real life and miniature world. And a couple of just tidbits also relating to set design and decoration and stuff. For the Mendel's chocolate boxes, like when they open and close like so neatly with the bow. So there's actually like a false tabletop and somebody underneath it who had just fishing line that helped like pull the box down at the right time. Otherwise, it just kind of would like collapse on itself. Oh, really? Yes. They just did like a little trick to like make it look just perfect. And then the boy with apple painting was done by the English painter Michael Taylor, who he used a bunch of Renaissance artists as inspiration. He only had like a couple of lines of description in the script to kind of base it off of. He wasn't even familiar with Wes Anderson movies at that point. So he kind of got a basis and then asked Anderson for like adjustments. And he worked on that painting for four months and it now lives in Wes Anderson's office. Okay. So that's, so that wasn't like a a real old painting that they recreated for. It's like a brand new made up nonsensical thing, right? Is what you're telling me. That's what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. Just, just like the country of Zabrovka. Mm hmm. That's what I'm telling you. I can't believe you would tell me that. Um, (laughs) So moving on to wardrobe, which again, I feel like is a very big thing in this movie. Obviously, wardrobe is always important in a movie, but specifically for Wes Anderson with the color coordination of everything and the look of everything, it's so important. So Milena Cananera was the costume designer. So she had previously worked on Life Aquatic, the Darjeeling Unlimited, and she most recently did French Dispatch and Asteroid City as well. And at this point, she won three Academy Awards for costume design for Barry Lyndon, Chariots of Fire, and Marie Antoinette. So, hmm. kind of, okay. kind of a big deal. Um, Those are some big ones. Mm-hmm. So, Candanera used 1930s period artwork, photographs, and uniforms as the inspiration for the costuming. But at the same time, she also decided to mix in like non-period art and fashion into the looks, which is why like it almost looks modern, but like not. You know, mm. I do. Okay. Real quick, I mad fuck with their uniforms. Yeah. It yeah, it's it, it cool. slaps. Mm-hmm. They're dripped. They're soaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Broken Ooh, faucet. Wee. Yeah. And um, the hotel. Call a plumber. <laughs> I could use some of that water right now since it's so hot. <laughs> Got him. Uh, the hotel uniforms are very vibrant, whereas in reality, they would have been much more subdued in color because just like with any hotel the help, quote-unquote, usually is supposed to be a little bit more invisible. So typically the colors aren't as vibrant uh, as As that. he states in the movie, they are to be invisible but available at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the military uniforms were specifically made to be, like, neutral and basically, like, not identifiable for any specific country. They did not want to uh, stir the pot oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. The two giant Zs definitely don't, like... Two other giant letters that are somewhat similar to a Z. Which Wes Anderson designed that. Um, and he called them zigzags. Zigs. Yeah, so they're the zigzag officers, even though like you never actually like hear that. Interesting. But yeah, so it was like, don't have them look too green. Don't have them look too this. Don't have them look too that. Like, keep it pretty neutral. And then, yeah, the boom, the ZZ top ones are... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just think huh. that the zigzag uniforms look really cool. Like, I'm not saying anything about... Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. condone anything that the zigzag soldiers do, but I do think they do be they dripping do be with mad swag. Dripping. Um, you know, Miles likes fashion. They do be mad dripping with swag, <laughs> yeah. like my armpits be dripping with sweat. You know, I'm a fashion designer. I can say I just like the fashion. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
You can't say fashion without fascist ism. Yes. So uh, they used Photoshop to kind of envision these looks on the actors. <laughs> Uh, just to kind of like make of, it more realistic. Uh, what? I'm sorry. Of all the shit we've talked about with like shadow puppetry and miniatures and all this, <laughs> they used Photoshop. Yep. You mean they'd have like a scrapbook where he like sat down with a wardrobe designer and they like cut out <laughs> yeah. felt patches. They just they just used Photoshop. I'm sure they did, but just to get like a better idea of the fit of the suits on the guys, they specifically yeah, no, had yeah, like. They're... Pictures of them. They're doing um, that shit from uh, the Truman Show, where he's taking parts from different magazines and putting them all together. <laughs> and they also worked with a Polish workshop for the uniforms in a company called Theater Kunst in Berlin to create the pieces. And then oh. the background extras, all of their stuff, were like uh, rented vintage wear that they got and then just returned after filming. Wes Anderson gave like the cast Grand Budapest robes, which is really cool. And Jeff Goldblum said it's his favorite robe and he wears it every day. <laughs> I'm going to look up this robe. Um, and before filming, Wes Anderson also asked like all of the male actors to grow out their facial hair and like their mustaches so that when they got to set, they could like trim them and like basically add panache into the film. And he said, quote, I think we certainly have the maximum supply of mustaches in this film <laughs> because he <laughs> felt like they added a lot of distinguishing features to the men. Yeah. Do you think I should grow my mustache like zero? Pencil it in. Yeah. I think that'd you be great. Not grow, not grow it. it, just draw it in. I think that'd be a great look for you, Miles. Oh, yeah. I'll you should try that with your hair, too. Oh, I should. I really should. <laughs> yeah. Do like a Homer Simpson kind of mm, like. Just three lines. Yeah. Of hair. Um, and just like a couple of specific things regarding the costuming. So Gustav's was intended to, quote, evoke a sense of perfection and control. Agatha's was meant to highlight like the brightness of her baking, which like we see when she's covered with flour. Ludwig, who is played by Harvey Keitel, his tattoos are a direct replication of the character Pear Jules in the 1934 film La Talante. Yeah, which sure. is a French La film. Talante. Um, and the MAV tattoo that he has on his arm translates to essentially death to cops. Yo, <laughs> so, it's like death right. to pigs. It's like death to pigs, and then pigs means cops. So yeah. Anyway, um, that's pretty. But, like, that's the, pretty the, sick. You can find like a side by side comparison of Ludwig and Jules, and it's just, yep, tattoos are exactly the same. Hmm. Um, Jopling, played by Willem Dafoe, has a Prada leather coat that was based on best one. military dispatch drivers. And then um, mm. they had custom silver knuckle pieces from the jeweler Waris Aluwalia, who was a close friend of Anderson. And then Ken and Era then basically put in red wool stitching and then added like the specific compartment for his weapon um, in like the front lapel. Yeah, yeah, I I do think Willem Dafoe's outfit goes the hardest. No, the knuckles. Uh, he's got the knuckles. He's got the Prada, and yeah, he's got that little like jacket front side pocket where he's got his booze and his gun. That is sick as. Hell. Yeah, what did they do to his mouth though? They gave him like little they bulldog gave him, like, teeth. Yeah. Yeah, like his bottom canines are like really long or something. He looks like an orc. A little bit. Yeah. And just to touch on the color of this film, which we can talk about like later, I just wanted to just comment that obviously like there's pastel and brighter colors before the war. And then as the war creeps in with the arrival of 
the zigzag soldiers, the grays and blacks appear more. Madame D's sons and daughters are all dressed in all black too because they're villains. Mad people. Um, they're villains. Yeah, but they're also like technically in mourning. I, don't know. I think I the guess. sisters are are on the side of good because they're kind of just like, oh, you you didn't know that the portrait got stolen. Yeah, like they're that. just there. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they're part of the scheme. <laughs> that happened like three weeks ago, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like the post-war Grand Budapest Hotel is like a lot darker. And then at the very end when Gustav stands up for Zero and it reveals, like older Zero reveals that Gustav was shot, that whole sequence is in black and white. So the color does change right. as as the war mm-hmm. creeps in. So um, yeah, that's kind of it for like the production side. I just wanted to like specifically touch on like the set design, the wardrobe, just because obviously those are like incredible in this film. So, the Grand Budapest Hotel premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival on February 6th, 2014, and ended up winning the Silver Bear Grand Jury Prize, and the North American premiere was February 27th in New York, where it, again, was received very well. And because of this hype, Fox Searchlight was very creative with their marketing strategy to promote this film. They did kind of like the typical merchandise that you would find, but they also created (laughs) mock websites about Zubrovkin's culture. Hmm. They had baking videos, which some of them are like fan-made, on how to make Mendel's treats. And then they bought commercial time on cooking networks to show it. That's cool. Hmm. I like Mm -hmm. that. Funny. Yeah. And then Prada also helped out and they displayed in their big Berlin store madame d's luggage that they created for this film because prada and wes anderson had worked together before so it was a good collaboration and they had this like really cool display and again there's an article all about it that i'll link so you can like see that too which is pretty neat well i know one thing they did because you know how they're like no presses uh all press is good press they had willem dafoe murder a man uh and there was a whole court case about it (laughs) Uh, to kind of hype up the you press. Do, you, you do this every <laughs> time. He can't keep getting away with it. I thought you were going to say like he walked on a runway because I know actors have done that before. And so... Hey, well, Willem Dafoe does do fashion. Well, and that's, what I, that's where I thought it was going. And then you just said this, that. No, no, yeah, he murdered a man. There's the one video where like... Uh, some guy meets him on a street and he's like, what are you wearing? And he's like pointing out at what he's wearing. He's like, oh, this is from blah, blah, blah. And he's pointing at his shoes and it's like, oh, wild, wild Willem. Yeah, no, uh, it was a classic Miles pretends to know something joke. Gotcha. Fun. All right, well. Fun fact oh. about uh, the costuming, though. All the different managers have different colors. Mm-hmm. They all got their different little silly color. And they're like a little rainbow mm-hmm. when you put them all together. They all have their own child slaves. Too. They do. And all their child slaves are good at something. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. All right. After this, I think, very creative <laughs> marketing campaign. What? Uh, I'm just looking. You can get the, the Grand Budapest Hotel William Defoe trench coat uh, for $329. Oh, shit. That's enough I'm willing to pay. It's on sale right now for 189 So Damn, that's actually not bad at all. I, uh, someone, if you could buy that for me. Anyway. I'll do that for Halloween if someone gets me the jacket. So after a brief launch in France, they rolled out limited showings in the U.S. to basically just like four theaters in New York and L.A. until the Academy Award nominations were out. And then once they got nine nominations, they uh, kind of did a much wider release. So in the box office, the German market helped the overseas department, obviously because they filmed it there. In the U.S., it had a very strong start but then kind of stalled a little bit. Um, That being said, against a $25 million budget, 
the overall worldwide gross was 173 million. So it did pretty damn well. And it was yeah. uh, the highest grossing independent film of 2014. And it is Wes Anderson's biggest box office movie to this day. Wait, so it's it's independent. Where did he get the funding again? Uh, the the um, studio was Fox Searchlight. That's not very independent then. Take it up with them. I didn't come up with this. I don't know. That's another one where the definition of yeah. independent is kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So um, at the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Picture, Directing, Cinematography, Film Editing, Costume Design, Makeup and Hairstyling, Score, Production Design, and Original Screenplay. And so out of nine nominations, it ended up winning four. So it won Production Design, Score, which that was Alexandre Desplat, who he has Ooh. done a number of things that I absolutely adore. So yeah, very good. Um, and there's a, I could have kind of gone down this like rabbit hole about like the instruments that they used for the score, but they basically used like a very rare instrument, like a, like a three uh, string instrument and based it all off of, I think, Russian folk tunes for the mm. uh, score. Anyway, yeah. um, makeup and hairstyling also won and costume design. So that was- yeah, They fucking made out, didn't they? Yeah, it did pretty well. And so then I just kind of have a couple little pieces of trivia and then I'm going to turn it over to you guys. I am melting in this heat, which is probably why yes. I sound insane and like I've rushed through this like I have somewhere to be. When Ludwig, again played by Harvey Keitel, tells Zero, good luck kid, outside the prison, he kind of like slaps his face and they hop into the van and then strangle a guy. So he really yeah, slapped him. That poor fucking guy. <laughs> he, did, um, he did nothing wrong. I know. Uh, but Keitel really did slap... Um, Revelory, and they had to do 42 takes of it. What? And he slapped him every single time. Oh my god. The last thing is that Madame D's makeup for Tilda Swinton took five hours to put on. So, Anderson doesn't really typically invest that amount of time or money into makeup, but he felt, especially for like an older person's makeup, Yeah, when you gotta make him look gross. And so he was willing to put as much money as it took to get like the very best to do it. And then, you know, it won an Academy Award for it. So probably worth it. But yeah, that's kind of it for everything that I have on Grand Budapest Hotel. There's obviously some things that I still want to like talk about and discuss with you guys. But in terms of like the production and the release, that's what I got. Information. Yeah. So uh, what, what do you guys think? I like it. I think it's very, it's, I was watching it and I was like, okay, this is, Probably Wes Anderson's most high, I would say hydraulic, where it's not like the motions don't feel robotic, but they don't feel as fluid as a human, you know, like just the way that like the cameras move, the way the people move. It's all very like precise. Yeah. Precise and stiff. Rigid. I.e. hydraulics. Hmm. But I I like it. I think it adds to the vibe. It passes the vibe check. Uh, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to, okay, if I sound too hoity-toity, like cut me off or cut me out, whatever, um, I'm going to talk about two things that this movie, like artwork things that this movie reminded me of. One of them is, there's a poem by Percy Shelley that I really like called Ozymandias, but that poem, the concept of that poem is it essentially is, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of meta self-reflective like this movie where it starts with a guy talking about a story he was told by a dude he met who saw ruins in a desert and then it's from the perspective of like the sculptor and then of the subject of the sculptor 
so it's like that same level of like kind of going deeper into the story. And then the point of that poem as well is kind of like ruminating on how time brings everything down and everything great will fall to ruin, which is like also kind of similar to the story with like the hotel being one that was, you know, this institution and this cultural icon now in its later years is just kind of a decaying wreck. And so it's it's very similar. And I don't know if that was any influence at all, but it lines up a lot. Um, the second little art thing I'm going to talk about is like, you know, w- what's interesting is looking at in, in like Europe and stuff, when fascism rolled around, as you could imagine, like really rocked everything. And there was like this cultural optimism that everyone had that just kind of died once the Nazis came around. You see that a lot with like Picasso's stuff. A lot of his paintings became kind of like this like dismal grays and stuff. And it just kind of reminded me of like when Mariah was talking about, you know, the colors changing with the the presence of fascism and just, you know, really thinking about what it's like to live in a country and to see the emotion and the culture of your country just die because of this occupying force, you know, I is really awful to think about. And so I, I was just, you know, going to bring that up. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to talk about with the movie is just like Wes Anderson's movies. I was talking to Mariah about this feel very just like emotionally distant because they're so quirky and like weird. And they just sort of like blow over information oftentimes. Like at the end, he's like, oh, my wife and child died from a silly little disease. And you're like, okay, bro. And then there's like, yeah, what happened to Gustav? He's like, oh, he got shot. He got shot. So I, I, I feel like it's sort of emotionally distant and especially on like your first viewings with all the like glitz and glam of everything going on. You like, you don't really feel the emotion. It's just kind of like stuff's happening and you're like along for the ride and it's like, oh, this is a jolly old romp. But like when you watch it a couple of times over now, I feel like you pick up more on some of those emotional beats than you did before. And I feel like the whole, even though like the the ending of the movie is like particularly sad, I feel like you can feel this sort of melancholy throughout the whole movie when you've seen it a couple times and you see it with bits of like Gustav sitting in his room, his room alone, like eating alone. Like there's just these bits and pieces that just feel very melancholic, especially with, you know, the zigzag soldiers changing the way of life. And there's even the mention of, you know, Gustav, the world he thought he lived in died well before he entered it kind of thing. Like he's, he's, you know, he's the ugly duckling kind of alone bit. So just just remarking on how multiple viewings is really changed how I perceive the movie. Well, damn, and then you get the whole thing with Zero being like, yeah, my my whole family's dead. Like, everyone I knew and loved is yeah. fucking gone. And they're like, oh, okay, so you're a refugee then. And he's like, yeah, I guess, man. <laughs> yeah, that's another one that they just kind of move on. They're like, okay, sorry. I mean, that one they hold on the longest, though, I think. I mean, they actually, that's like the moment they hug. Yeah, they hug and they actually have like an v- emotional thing there. The other ones, you just kind of like, well. Oh. But I guess that's what happens when you tell a story. You just kind of like, huh. Oh. Yeah, that's, um, I'm going to just jump on that because, yeah, I think this is, I, I know there are, this is kind of maybe perhaps overused by some people. Um, there's some people who are like, oh, every time I watch it, I see something, like I, I discover something new, you know? But yeah, I agree that I think like every time I've watched this, I've picked up on the emotion a little bit more because I know what to expect and I, not not that I'm less impressed with like the design and the cinematography and the choreography or anything like that, but just because I know what to expect, I can kind of focus on different aspects. And so, 
Yeah, I think, and and the last, I watched this a few months ago and then watched it again last night before this episode, and both times I've been like, damn, I like forgot how sad the ending was. Not just because Mm. everybody Zero Love died, but like, especially how he just talks about it. And, Mm. you know, he cries for Agatha at the beginning, but then at the end of the story, he's like, yep, that's it. Because he's yeah. probably not not that maybe he's told it a million times before, but it's become because he's come to grips with it, and that's just what happened, and he just got to keep moving on. And I think that's very sad as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Nazis. But, uh, <laughs> some of this is such common. Like when you get into film, right, and you start taking classes and stuff. One of the first people they'll talk about is Wes Anderson and his work, and you've probably seen shots from this movie. Yeah, if you're like a freshman in, you know. A grad school, film school, whatever. Like you, you're, you're gonna figure out who this guy is because his style is so distinct and so special and unique. And it's like to that extent, I almost don't like have much to say because I think everyone has said it before. Yeah, it's it's great. It looks fantastic. When talking about the mise en scène, he is brought up every single time. I I do want to talk about Ray Fine's performance in this because yeah. I feel like every time, again, every time I see this, I appreciate it more. And I th- like mm-hmm. his certain delivery of lines is just so funny. But and I think one thing I picked up um, more this time around was how he really seems like he has this anger in him, and he and it's mm-hmm. this um, refined person who quotes poetry and everything must have meaning and everything we can get a lesson from. That's all like a facade or something that he wants to hold on to, but like. That isn't at the very core who he is, I think, because mm-hmm. you have the moments when they first get beat up on the train and he starts to like recite something to Zero and he goes, ah, oh, fuck it. And yeah. then, you know, when Zero forgets the disguises and the perfume and he just like blows up at him. Moments like that, I think you really, I, I think it, those, those- In the confessional booth. Yes, I just, I find it very interesting that that's kind of where they went with the character that he definitely has his flaws and like definitely loses his temper at times. I mean, like when he's about to die and he's hanging on the cliff and he's reciting poetry and then Holy shit. There's screaming and barking and all a lot of ruckus happening outside. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, um when Gustav is hanging on the edge of like the snow cliff and then Zero pushes Dropling off and he's like, Holy shit, you got him. Like it's yeah. so funny to me. Oh, I thought, I thought and that I part think, was hilarious. And so mm. I think he found like a, such a good balance of, I mean, this is partially, partially obviously like on Wes Anderson for writing the character this way, but I think Fine's performance is just like so, so brilliant in it. And I, I love it. He yeah. also beats up and a I dude th- in prison. Yeah, because he's not a candy ass. Yeah, I agree. That's sort of what I was saying before, you know, like picking up with the emotional stuff is yeah, every time I see this movie, I think Gustav's character is more interesting. And there's more layers to him with each viewing. He's just a guy, you know? He's just a man trying his best. <laughs> and I love Agatha. I don't want to forget about Agatha. I love her. She's great. Movie's great. Uh, the aspect ratio thing that they do is cool. It wasn't super common. They do it a whole bunch now. I mean, Marvel movies are switching up aspect ratios like crazy. Mm-hmm. But like when this movie came out, that was pretty cool. That was I don't know about revolutionary, but like it, one of the strongest uses of that has definitely been this movie. So that's something to note. I think it's a good movie, and it's 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 uh, a lot of Wes's movies are like meta, 
like this where it's like, oh, a guy telling a story, you know, especially with like Asteroid City. Asteroid City is extremely. Yeah, they're all. I feel. I was gonna say French, all his movies are like man tells story and then the story is the story in the story. It's very. Yeah, the the French Dispatch is about a bunch of like what were they journalists yeah. and then so it's like stories within stories within. T- so like a lot of his movies tend to be kind of like meta like that where they go into themselves. But I like that honestly. Um, I I enjoy that. I like the framing and I, I think it adds like a nice amount of layers and then um I think it's it's a good way to just I mean hoopla you hear when people talk about film and storytelling but like it's you know it's emphasizing the power and the the human connection of telling stories because that's that's the thread in this movie is someone recalling an event they live telling another person telling another person who's then read by a woman you know years and years in the future like it's it's the power of storytelling which this also kind of ties into the emotional thing talking about how like sometimes you can feel kind of removed from this and i think it's partially Mm -hmm. because um yeah it's a story within a story and i think inherently by that structure and stylistically as well but i think by its structure um you automatically aren't like oh this is real so there's not necessarily a sense of realism in his characters or in his stories um and i think that framing device also kind of adds to that yeah because if, if Miles came to me and he told me a story about how he watched a movie with a guy and the guy's dog died, I'd be like, okay, I wouldn't have any emotional impact because, you know, you've, you've gone through so many layers that the emotion, I think, deteriorates along the way. Yeah, I would, I would, if no, I would agree with that. Sense. It's like every time you tell the story, it's emotional hit kind of goes down a bit. Yeah. Anyway. That's all I got. I'm ready to get my Swampy ass. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to get the AC going. So, Swampy why don't we... my hands on the button? <laughs> so, why don't Shrek. we go ahead and rate it, Miles? You want me to go first? Sure. All right. I think this is one of Wes Anderson's better movies. That being said, as you guys know, in the very beginning, I could not, for the life of me, remember what happened in the second half. Yeah. Although now that I think about it, if you ask me what happened in the second or even first half of Asteroid City, I also wouldn't be able to tell you. Or Homie, do you just have like short term memory? No, because I watched that one a while ago, so that would be long term. Mm-hmm. Um I have I have a pretty good memory <laughs> for like sh- other movies. Short term and long term. Yeah, I just got bad memory. Oh I mean to your defense, yeah, these movies are like meta and the structure is weird and not it's just if you asked me what happened in Indiana Jones, I could go fucking scene by scene with you on that one. With Wes Anderson movies, I I just I fucking can't. Uh, but it was very fun to look at. It was very fun to listen to because I like his, I like the way he delivers jokes. It's just like you know the quick yep. one two and then it moves on. I again I do think this is one of his better movies. So. All in all, I would give this movie probably like a I don't know, six point five out uh, uh six point five Ooh Hella Fly purple uniforms out of ten. It's nice. you know, it's a fun movie okay. to watch. I do recommend that you watch it. It's not gonna end your life if you don't watch it though. All right, stuff. Is any movie going to end your life if you don't watch uh, it? Yeah, probably like a how-to guide on uh, surviving poison 
if you have been poisoned. That's not a well, movie. like we no, said, in, like we discussed in the very beginning of this. I know it's, it's a throwback. Yeah, but if it's a how-to guide, that's not a movie. Okay. That's a guide. W- documentary. Bozo. The, documentary, not okay. a movie. Um, <clears throat> for all the reasons I discussed, you know, I, I find a lot more depth in this movie than I did before. Again, because, again, I, I hope I don't sound like a, a snotty, snotty snot person. But, like, in the last year, I've done, like, a lot of reading about, like, artists during, like, Nazi occupation. And I find that, like, interesting. And that, so this is, like, relating to that. So I just, I don't know. I, I find it more interesting than I have before. <laughs> You're entering your white dad era pretty early there, Stefan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I take away a lot more from this. And then, like, I you know, every reason I explained before. So I'm going to give it, like, 8.2 shanks, prison shanks out of 10. Um, Yeah, for everything that I talked about, the fact that I feel like sometimes with movies, the more times I watch it, the more I'm like, yeah, meh, I don't know. This one, I feel pretty good about every time I see it. Um, so I'm going to be giving it eight layer de panaches out of ten. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. I liked it. It's good. I definitely, I think for some people in doing research, people either think this is like one of the best Wes Anderson movies or it's like one of their least favorite Wes Anderson movies. For me, it's like one of, mm. I think, my favorites of his, but... Um. Same. It is. It's weird how they're all, like, so similar, but this one does just feel different. Yeah. Anyway, I think that kind of wraps everything up. So before we mm-hmm. hit the outro, Miles, I'm going to throw it over to you. What are we doing next? Hey, it's me, your boy, Miles Trees. Um, So I just finished reading a wonderful book, one of my favorite books, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Oh, so we will be. Oh no, Mariah! <laughs> oh no, we are going to be watching the movie that is based off of that book, Blade Runner, <laughs> feature, featuring yeah. Harrison Ford. Mariah, why do you not like Blade Runner? I can't stand Blade Runner, so this should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the first was it just a patience problem, or like excuse well, okay, me, Mariah doesn't Mariah doesn't like sci-fi stuff. Gen well it. It depends, but a lot of is this stuff is this going like to be? Uh, this like is my the, Rocky Horror. I was going to say, is this the flipped version of Rocky Horror? I mean, she's also not a man, so she doesn't get the he like me for real for real. Yeah, uh, cyberpunk dystopian. Yeah. You really got to be down for the vibe. he just like me for real for real. I I am interested. I will admit, I'm very interested to rewatch it <laughs> to see how I feel about it now. But uh, yeah. when I watched it in college, I could not get through it. I absolutely hated it. I forced myself to finish it, but it took me a week to watch that movie. Oh my god. Yeah. So All right, be, we'll start watching now. For me. Yep. This will be interesting. <laughs> right, yeah, Blade right. Runner, the old one, not the new one. Alright, well, in the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at the takes it took. And if you want to be like Wesley and email us any questions that you have, any hypotheticals or any corrections or any movie suggestions, you can hit us up at the takes it took at gmail.com. But until then, uh, until our next episode, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and um, see you on the flippity flop. Yeah, okay. Skadoodle. All right, bye. I couldn't think of anything relating to Grand Budapest to like end that out. <laughs> <laughs>